And we're just a little bit after 9 o'clock, 91.3 FM, WVUD and WVUD, HD1 Newark, listener-supported public radio and the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware. It's time for Wednesday's edition of Avenue C, and our special guest Maria Schneider will be here in a moment or so. Stay right where you are.
and that is Woody Herman and the Thundering Herd, and that was actually Woody's Woody's last album, and Maria Schneider wrote the chart for that as a very very young composer, and I'd like to to welcome Maria to joining us here on Avenue C, and and uh, hoping that you're having a, a a happy and healthy day, Maria. Thank you for joining oh. us. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Well, it's it's a it's a great pleasure and it's a great honor and as my friends have teased me for the last 10 years, I'm I'm one of the Maria Schneider groupies in the world if there can be such a thing. So I <laughs> I've done Oh, my, that's nice. Well, I, thank you. <laughs> I've done my share of uh serious drives to be able to see the band in different places and never never have I been disappointed you were here a few years ago I'm trying to pin it down and you played the Clifford Brown Festival but I, it's been six or seven I think maybe two, 2009 somewhere in there so I can't you remember even I don't know you well you were here I was there you were here but <laughs> at any rate uh, in the interests of of how small the music world can be I I ran into a gentleman that you uh, apparently were good friends with in your Eastman days, and he ran a record store in Rochester called The Bop Shop. Do you have memories oh, of that? Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> a lot of my uh, first introductions to a lot of music came from from that guy, and he, it, it was a great store, yeah, I, well, wonderful I, place. I, I met him at a, a record show, and somehow you came up, and he just started laughing. He said, oh, Marie is fantastic. And I said, well, you, you know her. And he said, she hung out in my store all the time when she was up here. I said, oh, okay, well, it's yeah. <laughs> small world. He said he helped you find some some rare Gil Evans, I think, is what he mentioned Ab- to me. Absolutely, yeah. He introduced me to a lot of music. It was kind of the 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 music that I didn't get at, at the Eastman School. I got another sort of fringe education over in the Bob shop. I mean, that's, you know, record stores, small record stores, like small bookstores, were so wonderful for that. You know, that browsing thing, just looking around and having somebody there in the store that is an expert and a fan and of, of music and somebody who truly can lead you directions you wouldn't normally go and that's something that's so lost, and it's really kind of sad, I think. Oh, I I agree with you. That's a little bit of what I hopefully accomplish here on a weekly basis. At least that's uh, part Absolutely. of the attempt. And yeah. uh, if I can reach one person and they get excited about something, then I've, 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 I'm thrilled by it, too. I, I wanted to ask you, we opened with, uh, in a mellow tone in the Rose Room medley that you created for Woody Herman, in the eighties when you were you were a fledgling composer and what are your feelings about hearing that now? Oh it's it's fun to hear that because it's so big band and even though I still write for a big band my music sounds not like a big band anymore. So it's it's and I think it's fun to look back and see how traditionally I wrote and to now see yeah, I mean, we all kind of want to see, or maybe not all of us, the future, what happens. And so sitting here and listening to that, it's sort of like I'm able to sit here and imagine myself back then and then see all the influences that would come into my work and how far it would go in terms of just being different than that. It's it's pretty amazing. Well, and, you know, what you dreamed up there, making it into a a, a showcase for Woody, 
when he, you know, I'm sure you were aware of certain limitations he had as a musician at that point. He was getting old and he was really up against it and it just worked so beautifully. Well, he, he loved playing Rose Room and so Mm -hmm. I knew that. And so I came in with the idea of just letting him play Rose Room and then, you know, then writing that arrangement. But it, it wasn't exactly in my wheelhouse already. Normally I was, um, writing things that were a little bit more orchestral and Gil Evans-ish. But when I had that opportunity to write something for, for Woody Herman, <laughs> I really tried to put it in, in that direction. So that, that direction was a little bit outside of myself at that time, too, already. But, you know, that was, that's what being a, a commercial arranger is. Hmm. You have to deliver what people want and i would say you know then over the years i i I got the opportunity to work with with gil evans i got the opportunity to write for the mel lewis band i studied and worked with bob brookmeyer and in the end working with all those people and trying to when i was with each of them sort of put on their hat and try to deliver what they needed me to to deliver in the end, I said, you know what, the reason these people are all so great is they're so uniquely their own. I really need to go off and just do my own music and not be writing for other people's groups that write for my own group. And, and that helped me find, you know, find my own path. That's wonderful. Well, Woody was famous for being a great editor. Do you did he edit your chart at all once he you, you put it in front of the band or did he leave oh, it as gosh. is? I, that's hard to remember. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I I think he probably did. Mm. There might have been some things that he he said. You know, it's funny. I can't remember. Well, it's okay. I really can't remember. Well, I I've read so many things and I know people that have told me. You know, musicians that have said Woody would. He would turn an, an orchestrator loose, and then he would take a look at it and hear the band do it, and he knew exactly what needed to go here and there, and he might move this there and that, and then it would work perfectly. And he was a genius at that, and so that's where my my question yeah, is coming from. Yeah, it's possible. I, it's possible. Mm. I, I just don't recall. It's amazing because you would think I would remember every single thing, but I guess that's <laughs> what happens when the decades peel back. <laughs> Five, like, uh, oh my gosh, it's 30 years. Well, you don't, it's not, certainly not required for you to be a zealot for such details as I am, so that's <laughs> no problem. I was curious, too, about, I mean, with the artist share, you know, the the whole business plan and everything that works with that, how are you able to, to gauge, you know, how well the new album is doing? Is it is it something that you're able to do very, you know, gauge very accurately? Well, the whole thing with artist share is this, connection with the fan and you know sharing the whole process of making a recording not just selling the recording in the old style of doing it in a store or something so when somebody and everything is transparent so if somebody buys my cd through my site i see that that sale i can look up all the people that ordered a concert in the garden or sky blue or whatever mm-hmm. And it's really wonderful because then I can connect with those people. And I can also see the old thing in the old days with record companies as everybody felt like somebody was taking their money. Well, 
I can see every sale and I know exactly every day what I'm making. So it's kind of in the beginning, it was sort of fun, but it was very distracting. You know, the sales would come in and I was constantly adding it up. Uh. (laughs) And finally, one day I said, okay, I have to put this in a separate little inbox here so I don't look at this and just kind of look at it at the end of the week or something. Uh, okay. Well, that's that's wonderful to know. I, I mean, at this stage, it's been 10 years uh, since Concert in the Garden. Yeah. And, and you take all that into account. Your first three albums were done the, shall we say, the traditional way. Did you have producers getting in the way of what you were doing with those three albums, or did you have artistic control in the studio? Luckily, I mean, my first record I made, I did it before I had a record company. Mm. Um, I did it on my own, and then I tried to sell it to people, and it was very difficult. Nobody Mm. wanted it. People said they didn't know how to market me, and that was really frustrating because I felt it was a good record. It it is a good record. It's continued to sell really well over Mm, the years. Evanescence is what we're speaking of. Yeah, and that, um, finally, this wonderful label, uh, Enja in Germany, who you know, they were, were always picking very creative music. So I, I was very pleased when they said that they would work with me. And so I did my next albums on Enja. And uh, yeah, and, and they always gave me complete creative control, which was, you know, it's very, very much appreciated. Well, that's that's it. That's wonderful. It's good to note because you know way better than I do. I'm sure the horror stories you may have heard from Bob or Gil along the way, you know <laughs> what everybody's been up against for um, 80 years, I guess. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, there are a lot of pe- producers, but you know, my that will really control what an artist does. But my uh, idea always was to basically self-produce <laughs> my mm. projects and and keep control and so i think you know, everybody knew there was no chance of getting away with anything else i would have said forget it i'm out of here that's great well i it's interesting the idea around becoming a band leader and etc i mean we're talking about an incredibly male-dominated society i mean that's what jazz has been incredibly male dominated for so long and band leaders in particular and i read something somewhere that made me laugh bob brookmeyer was talking about the fact that you two did a lot of discussing how you were supposed to approach that and he said something to the effect that well remember that most of us have been staring up at an ugly face for so many years that it'll be refreshing to see you in front of <laughs> in front of the band and i i laughed i thought it was wonderful that's a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bob. Bob was pretty funny, and but you know, he I, when I was first writing, I was really concerned about, the, and actually, that in the melotone, I think I was studying with Bob when I was writing that, and mm. we talked about how to get muscle into the music and the repetition of rhythm, mm. and that part of that arranging i do remember that because working with bob i don't remember woody so much saying anything but but bob um was very helpful with that but you know women are getting more and more represented in the music and i i think it's good to have that bob said to me at one point he said okay i'm going to you know help you get that muscle in your music but he said the truth is 
if there is some kind of feminine side to your music, he said that's needed in the music. The variety mm. of of viewpoint and perspective mm. in writing. So he he was so supportive of me, mm. really. Well, it's it's the devotion that the that the band seems to have for you is so evident when you see when you see the orchestra together and i'm i find that fascinating i'm not a musician but i i see enough live music and i'm so intensely involved that i can see the difference between to a certain extent a group that's really integrated the way your orchestra is and others that aren't quite as tightly knit and it's it's fascinating that you're able to maintain that when you aren't necessarily on the bus or the plane together every day all the time yeah, but it's it's been a long time, though, and I think that those spaces in between gigs are even good. And then when we get together, it's putting on it's like putting on an old favorite shoe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's just so comfortable. Everybody knows each other so well, and I think one of the things that people react to when they hear the band that they enjoy is watching everybody appreciate each other so much and. And largely what that is and why that is, maybe as opposed to seeing some other band sometimes, is that the guys in my band, when they improvise in the rhythm section, they they take tremendous risks playing things really differently every time. Mm. And sometimes somebody just not playing at all and leaving a soloist completely by themselves and coming in with different grooves or even pushing it into different keys and you know, so many different directions happen, and and so we are always entertained, all of us, on so many levels by each other. It's not, it's, I, I you use the word devotion, and I would say it isn't, it, it isn't really devotion towards me. I just think that it, there's such a mutual uh, respect across the board everybody for everybody in the band and such a support um, musically within the band that um, it's, it's, it's just really fun. It's really, really fun. So you're, you're just seeing people being happy. I think, (laughs) I hope. Well, the, the way that you describe that, that that's very much the way that the Thad and Mel band worked too. They were they were constantly evolving in the, in that kind of way, and, and I believe that's the case. You can you probably know that better than me, but that sounds like it's the same kind of thing. Absolutely, and okay. and Thad changing up arrangements and calling in different backgrounds right on the spot, mm-hmm. all things to make it alive. And and then the audience, you know, they they hear that vitality and they hear that life and they see the band that it's fresh for the band too. You you can't fake. A band sitting there can't fake the enthusiasm if every soloist is kind of playing sort of the same solo every night and it's just a little bit cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. That's when things get really stale. I mean, for mm-hmm. me, the the fun is the surprise, the spontaneity, the, the risk-taking. And sometimes they'll take risks and it's kind of not the best. You say, <laughs> oh, maybe that wasn't the best direction mm-hmm. ever. But usually there's a big payoff for doing that. No, that's wonderful. Well, while we're talking about risks and et cetera, the creative process for you when you started composing for the Thompson Fields, the new CD, 
how how do you get yourself started? I mean, I, I I'm curious about what kind of how do you develop your mindset? How do you get yourself in there and get it uh, started? Oh, okay. okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's a great time to ask me because after this album was released, you know, for for months I was mixing and mastering and then dealing with the artwork and then the business of getting it out and then all the interviews and. Now I'm starting to, to think about, okay, I've got to get composing again because I literally just didn't have minutes in my day. And how do you get there? You just have to work up the courage to sit down and grope and, and grope for ideas. Or you, you just have to sit there and, until it comes. And, and you can't, you can't, just wait for inspiration. It doesn't happen that way. It, the hard work rewards you with inspired moments. <laughs> mm. So, and most times when I write, I don't sit down with the intent of writing a piece about the prairie, about my home, about the Thompson Fields. I, ne- I never work that way. Mm. I, for me, that would be like writing commercially for myself. <laughs> Maria, I'm giving you an assignment. You're going to mm. write a piece about the Thompson Fields today. Mm. It, I, the way I work is something comes to me. So that it, with the Thompson Fields, it was a rare moment where the melody and the harmony for that first opening song came to me in the laundry room of my building. Mm. Lord knows why. That <laughs> never happens to me. And so I came up and I quick wrote it down, and I said, that's really beautiful. It must be something else. <laughs> But I, it wasn't, and, and I, at least not that I know of, I hope. And, um, and then I started working on it, and then right after that I went out to Minnesota to the Thompson farm, climbed the silo with Tony Thompson, and we're looking out, and I'm just feeling all the nostalgia, the memories of fa- our family, appreciating that part of the country that is so unique that you appreciate even more when you go away, you you come back to it with a different view and just how precious it is. And all of a sudden that song, I realized that that song felt like that place. And so then I used that experience to develop that piece. And that happens to me a lot that I start writing the music and all of a sudden some memory attaches itself to that. And then that drives the development of the piece. Mm. Wow. Okay. It's, I think most of us civilians, non-musicians, have the Hollywood image in our head about, oh, someone sits down at the piano and there's a score in front of them and they plunk out a couple notes and then they start scribbling and that's how writing happens. And I, Yeah, I would say get that out of your head. Exactly, because it, it doesn't work that way for anybody. It, it doesn't, and it's so, well, Mozart it did, but he was, <laughs> and we all hate him for that, but we, we you know, it's such incredibly hard work. And when you do have those moments where something just comes out of thin air, you could make the argument that that was 40 years of work mm-hmm. to get to that moment. Sure. And, and that's why when people think that, oh, musicians, they just make music. It's a God-given talent. Uh. They don't really need to be paid. I can get this album on the Internet, whatever. They they have no idea. I think I think musicians are the hardest working people I know. 
uh, you know, they put everything into their work and they beat themselves up on a daily basis. It's, mm-hmm. We're all so self-critical and and stressed and <laughs> worried and insecure. And it's really, it's not an easy life. No, and I that's part of what I wanted to kind of bring out. I, I'd like to, to offer that point of view because, you know, I think people have, most civilians have no clue what it really means to be a, a composer in this world today with, with a serious approach like the one that you have. And I, it, it's interesting, I was going over all of the, the albums. The first two, is, they're referenced as the Maria Schneider Jazz Orchestra, but by the third, the word jazz is removed. Was that a specific decision on your part? It was. Because people were having such a hard time categorizing my music, and is it jazz or is it classical or is it? And I just thought, you know what? Let me take this word jazz out because it's sort of silly. Um, it pigeonholes it, their people's viewpoint of you before they even hear you. Yes, and I and I quit using big band early mm-hmm. on too because big band conjures up such a specific sound. Yes, and that, and even if you look at my band, and I call it a band, I don't say my orchestra, mm. even though I call it the Maria Schneider Orchestra. <laughs> if I just refer to my group as, oh yeah, my band, mm-hmm. um, it is a big band essentially with accordion, but I orchestrate it to not sound like a big band. I try mm. to make it sound very transparent and beautiful and nuanced, and give it a lot of air and lightness, whereas big band music is normally more dense, more packs a punch Mm. to it. It's more ensemble oriented, less solo, soloistic, solo line Mm. oriented. So it's, yeah. I keep thinking that one of these years we will get a new Maria Schneider album though. And you will surprise all of us because you're, you're going to put a, a crazy shout course in the middle of something somewhere. <laughs> it's going to blow our happen. minds. It could happen. Yes. <laughs> Anything could happen. Well, I that's, you. and that's, that's, that's wonderful. But it, it's, that's the fascinating part because if someone picks up your CD and they look at the personnel, it's the normal construction of what we consider to be a big band. You've got four trumpets and four trombones and a reed section that double on woodwinds. And the, the trumpets all play flugelhorn and your rhythm section. So it looks like, without knowing that it's just, oh, another big band, but it far from that, totally. Yeah, a lot of times I'm writing for odd combinations, like a mm-hmm. flugel together with a clarinet, with a flute, and then the trombone, one trombone player is playing something behind it with the guitar. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm always extracting single people out of the thing to make colors that when you listen to it, you don't even know what you're listening to. Well, I think one of the most interesting things in the, the voice that you have created, or well, not, well, yeah, I think you have, you've created the voice for Gary with the accordion. It's just oh. startling how you've worked that in, because, you know, we, we're talking about a century of jazz musicians making fun of, you know, accordions, accordion jokes, the whole deal, <laughs> and you've turned that upside down and inside out, and it's incredible. The accordion is so perfect in the band because it's got a very high tessitura. It can play higher than anybody in the band, Mm. and it can play high and sustained, 
the trumpet can't really do that. The flute can't really do that, not without being shrill and running out of breath and in the piano decays. And here the, the accordion can be like this high little violin up there. Or it can do whole chords and it can change its sound a little bit, play whole chords and give a whole kind of ethnic feeling to, to the music. So it's mm. really fun to have that color in the band. Well, and in the, in the new album, of course, A Potter's Song, your dedication to Lori Frink is a, is a feature for Gary. Tell that story for the, those of my listeners that haven't picked up the album yet. Well, Lori played in the band for many years since my first album. She was such a wonderful trumpet player. And sadly, and now I just remembered, the concert you said that we played, was that an outdoor concert? Yeah, the Clifford Brown Festival is always outdoors, and it's not the best... It wasn't the best venue for your band because the nuances kind of get lost. But Well, you know. I now I just remembered that concert because that concert, Lori turned a horrible shade of yellow. We were, we just, she, mm. we couldn't figure out what was wrong with her right after. She wasn't feeling well. And it was just days after that concert that she was diagnosed with bile duct cancer. Oh. Okay. And she, and she actually, she, she I don't know when that concert was. She mm. died just two years ago, mm. a couple of days ago. It was, um, and she was a magnificent musician. Mm. Oh my gosh! And a very revered teacher, brass players, not just trumpet players, brass players of all kinds from or- orchestras all over the world would come and study with her because. She had a way of helping people with musculature, the, the embouchure, they call it, mm. um, when they play, and helping people, brass players that would really get in a crisis where things were, weren't working right. And um, anyway, she was also a great potter. Mm. So when I wrote this, I was writing this song, and I just thought, oh, this, this feels like Lori. It feels very sweet. And, and I decided to call it a potter song. Mm. Well, it's it's just another one of the marvelous pieces on the album. It took five days, well, at least the, your notes reference, five recording studio days um, and eight eight recordings. And I, I've read how meticulously things go in the studio. So how did that break down? Did you just essentially get two done in, uh, for a session, for a four-hour session, and then we'll come back tomorrow and do the next two? Is that how it works out, or how did well, it go? the first day... I, I added a day kind of towards the end because we had the idea to arrange an old arrangement I had done for Yvonne Lintz and Toots Thielemans mm-hmm. on an Yvonne Lintz song, and it's an extra download that you get when you buy the album uh-huh. based on this Brazilian song called Lember Jamin. So I said to my, I, I was concerned that if you have technical problems in the studio or problems getting the sound together or something that um, it, that uh, I, I just lost my train of thought that um, I was concerned that we might need that that time in the studio mm. a cushion um, just just to test it so I said okay we're gonna uh, um, run down that piece and one other piece and see if we can just get everything really set and feeling well and feeling really good with the band. And so we ended up recording those pieces and, and people can get them. And then the actual album, I had four days and 
uh, gosh, we probably did, I would say, three takes of most pieces. Mm. And then Potter's Song, which we did at the beginning, we ended up doing it again at the end because I felt like in the beginning, you know, one of the hardest things in the studio is when everybody has headphones on, mm-hmm. the, um, uh, they're play, they aren't, it's, it's not like listening acoustically. So you don't know how loud you're playing. Mm-hmm. And so people tend to play harder to compensate for what they're not hearing. So it takes maybe a couple of days for everybody to get really comfortable and say, okay, I'm, I'm trusting in the sound now. I don't have to push. And so that piece, I felt like we had really pushed it. And I wanted it to be very light and sweet. So I came back at the end and said, I want to redo this song. It's mm. too, we're, we're pushing it too hard. It needs to lighten up. So it's, it's hard in the studio to get all that nuance and, and tenderness and expression in the music. Mm. Well, it's 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 all there wonderfully. I have to ask it. I when you get ready to go to a gig with with the band, do you have to make a separate phone call to tell Scott bring twenty seven instruments or nine or just four and <laughs> specify what he's supposed to bring to the gig? Oh yeah, always. <laughs> um, matter of fact, we just have a we have a rehearsal coming up and. Some guys were writing, oh, what doubles do I need? And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, now i got to go through all the pieces and figure out who needs a clarinet and a flute. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Every rehearsal, every concert, every mm-hmm. recording, it's a logistical, you know, uh, obstacle course to get through, really. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's part of all the work that goes into it. I saw Scott a couple of years ago playing with Marty Groves at a little fireman's hall on a Sunday, and he took his trumpet mouthpiece and jammed it into an alto, and he made it work. It was incredible. Really? Yes, it blew my mind. We were all just kind of like, I guess he was bored. (laughs) This was amazing. We're like, what is he doing? It was, uh, well... What a what I a musician! To ask you to do that for me because I, somehow I've missed out on that. I'm feeling well, cheated somehow. No, well, that's just a little. You know, they're that little group. They're playing. You know, 1920s and 30s. You know, chamber jazz, uh, mm-hmm. Jimmy Noon, that kind of thing. But I just thought of that while you were describing. You know what you go through with doubling, and that's what Scott did. Well, I Scott, know. We're... Scott, I was just going to say Scott is amazing because he can play so traditionally, <laughs> and then he can take it to the moon. Yeah. And what I what I love about it is it always sounds so authentic. It doesn't sound like he's putting on all these different creative hats. It just feels like pure joyful expression in the hands of Scott Robinson. He's he's a genius. For me, that, that man should get that genius grant. You know, the mm-hmm. MacArthur. He'd be he'd be a good a good person to win that. Well, it sound, he to me. Again, as a non-musician, it always sounds to me like, though, he just absorbed everything of the history of jazz somehow, and it's all inside of him, but everything comes out of him in his voice. Yes, and, if... and that, is, that is what you just described, is what every musician tries to get to. You, you study, you learn, and then in the end you have to lead a life and trust in what you've learned, and of course you keep learning along the way and adding to it, but just trust in it and, and express in the same way that you did when you were a child and you first sort of sang or played just with kind of abandon before you started judging every single thing that mm. you do so harshly. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, well, definitely. Well, and I have a couple other questions. I know we're kind of kind of wandering long here, and I know you you have so much going on. Is it like doing a book tour? I mean, you're you're constantly doing these kinds of things, or is that slowed down a little bit? Oh, there's quite a few of them, okay. uh, interviews mm-hmm. that I'm doing, but okay. it's fun, and believe me, I'm so happy after all this work to share the music, and mm-hmm. I'm so excited when people enjoy it and feel moved by it. That's very gratifying. So after all that work, I, you know, I'm, I'm, this is, this is a nice, a nice change of pace okay. to, to just talk about music. Oh, well, wonderful. We love doing that here. I, I know that you, you, to a large extent, helped launch the, the Ryan Truesdell Gil Evans project. And we have to thank you all for that. Those two, those two albums are just overwhelmingly great um mm-hmm. thank you for your <laughs> push or whatever you did with all that are you oh, kind of ryan's mentor is that it are you kind of mentoring him or how does that work well when he first uh many years ago he wanted to take uh lessons with me mm-hmm. and he came and took a couple of lessons in new york and then uh over time we uh he had told me that he copied music and so then I asked him to copy music, and then he started working and doing more and more work for me. Eventually, he was road managing the band for me, but mm. always kind of working on his own music. And he loved Gil's music so much. And <sighs> I said he should contact the Gil Evans family, and um, and he ended up going through the music and finding all this never-before-recorded Gil Evans music, and he... Mm. really meticulously, you know, did a lot of research. And and he was, at that point, he was also helping me produce my recordings, mm-hmm. co-producing. So through being around the band and getting, I guess, to watch me kind of go, you know, he, he learned a lot mm-hmm. and learned a lot about recording and, and um, just kind of through osmosis. And so it paid off because he did a great job very responsibly and beautifully recorded that music, and it's a oh. wonderful, wonderful thing. I love the, the new live album, oh, too. It's heavenly. It's yeah. really fun, yeah. And, it's, and he mixed it really well, too, and yeah. he did a great job. It's 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 over, it's over overwhelming, kind of, to me. I, I've listened to it over and over, and I keep finding new things in there. It's, it's sensational, sensational. Yeah. I, I, I want to ask you a question that I love asking my friends on a daily basis, just out of the blue. If you had time today to listen to music, and I hope you did, what did you listen to, if you'd, you're willing to share that? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> okay. Actually, the only I was running around so much today, mm. I didn't listen to music except oh. something that and my assistant here was playing, and I, didn't, and I remember wanting to ask her what it was, and I didn't know what it was. Oh, okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I'll tell you, I, I just heard... so. Taylor Swift's um, musical director, his name's David Cook. Okay. And uh, uh, Marie said, here, check out this album he made. And it's beautiful. Really? It's a beautiful jazz album, yeah. Hmm. And and so that was a new one with, a, you know, <laughs> some... But Kendrick Scott is playing drums on okay. it. Kendrick has played in my band. Mm. And it's wonderful writing. It's really beautiful writing. So that was just kind of a, 
a new gem I stumbled on, <laughs> and okay. there he is, you know, Taylor Swift's musical director, and he makes this beautiful jazz record. So, <laughs> so uh, I won't he, touch that. Apparently, them. he knows a lot of guys in the in my band very okay. well. So um, he's a great musician. So that that was kind of fun. Okay, well, I something I, you wouldn't expect, I bet. Certainly, no. And I, I I just love you know I'll shoot emails to friends and say what have you listened to today, and they shoot back you know I've listened to this this and this, and it's it's a fun question to ask each other, just to find out where we are in our in our musical journeys. I guess I have one one last question for you uh, before we kind of wrap up. Uh, so, how do you clear your head from the last? project and and start thinking about the next one or do you just leave it alone and let it come to you is it a conscious thing it's not conscious okay it's just um i i mean i suppose there is something where you don't want to repeat yourself mm. <laughs> but mostly with my music i'm just kind of um just following i never plan a record i just follow my next step of whatever influences me to write and I just kind of go piece by piece and eventually I find myself in a little bit new territory mm. <laughs> okay <laughs> well, that's 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 interesting the creative process well I know that uh, you have the the Newport Jazz Festival gig in early August and you're playing the Detroit Jazz Festival in early September and then you have a European tour, and then it's back at the Jazz Standard, your annual visit to the Jazz Standard over Thanksgiving week. So there will certainly be a lot of a lot of action for the band, and it looks like the European tour is fairly busy. You'll be playing, what, uh, Barcelona, uh, Switzerland. Istanbul. Yes. Oh, you're, you're Istanbul, going everywhere. Yes. Poland, England. Yeah, and, and that, I'll tell you, planning a tour for the band, that is... A lot of work, and mm -hmm. so we're a lot of my time in my days right now is just figuring out how to get that tour to happen, and that right. I'm not losing money um, okay. because sometimes I'll go to Europe with the band, and I've done tours in Europe where I lost ten thousand dollars because I just oh. didn't make it, and okay. I I can't afford to do that. So it's mm. I'll tell you this. <laughs> okay. I not easy to be no. a musician these days. It's no. really, really not. I, I, um, yeah. It's I, I recognize how tough it is. I just recently read the new Mac, new book on Mel Lewis, and I think at one point he had a tour where he lost thirty thousand. Oh. And they had really? to refinance their house to cover it, and uh, that's just a nightmare. But you know, these are the things that that unfortunately happen. <laughs> If we oh were in a, gosh. if we were, we if we didn't live in such a, a predominantly, I don't know, musically illiterate world, maybe it would be a little different. I can only hope. But anyway, I really want to thank you, Marie. It's been wonderful to have you on, and you know, remind everyone the website uh, marieschneider dot com, and that's where the Thompson Fields is available, along with all the other seven CDs. They're all there. Thank you so Thanks. much for having me on your show. You ask great questions. You're obviously, <laughs> you, you know, you know your music. That's for sure. Well, I I appreciate that. It's uh, I'm kind of a kind of a zealot about all of it, but it's been a great honor to have you on the show with us, Maria. And get some rest. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> have Thank a beautiful you. evening. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. WVUD ninety one point three FM and WVUD HD one Newark. And a thank you to Maria Schneider to share such a long, beautiful 45 minutes with us talking about her career and the music and everything else. 
Ah, I need a little bit of a break. Let's listen to the the tune that we were referencing there, a Potter's song, uh, the the item dedicated to Lori. Gary Versace is featured on the accordion. <laughs> 